0: Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Mags with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We are live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Thursday, the 1st of February, and coming up, the country's logistics crisis is being described as a perfect storm. Is there any sign of this abating? The global impact of the ICJ genocide ruling, why entrepreneurship is seemingly stumbling in South Africa, the high cost to business of poor mental health, and are local companies prepared for the Amazon onslaught? The Southern African Association of Freight Forwarders says the logistics crisis in South Africa is, in its words, a perfect storm, strangling the private sector and trade negatively and impacting uh, the fiscal outlook, causing a massive knock-on damage to the nation at large. That's a fairly blunt assessment. Well, the chief executive officer of the association, Dr. Juanita Maria, is first up on the programme. And why are you calling it a perfect storm?
1: Yeah, I think maybe I can give you a couple of um, suggestions or actions that Mm. uh, took place over the last two months. So if you can recall in November, we had 25 vessels out of Anchorage and currently we're operating now between seven and nine. It's not ideal because you probably want to have about two vessels out of Anchorage or at birth but uh, and that comes back that we probably will recover i would think fully in the middle of february um let's say the end of february middle of march because currently we can see we still have 15 days in the extended supply chain so that's not really the norm but i think we're working towards a norm let's say by the middle of march Mm. end of march
0: so am i detecting a slight note of encouragement here
1: definitely because i mean what happened since last year november Transit have done some shift changes, so that helps with uh, a longer extended shift of the people at uh, Ship to Shore, Crane and uh, Strato Carriers. They also brought back an incentive scheme to the people if they're over the 36,000 mark containers per week. They also introduced the backup port uh, facilities in terms of Bay, Threat and King's Rest. And also what we can see, they focus on the skills. So they've got a team from the USA here now in South Africa that, as you probably know, they work with Navis, which is a Developed Terminal Operating System, mm. and uh, they brought in people from overseas now from America, as I indicated, and it will be for a period of 12 weeks. And what is also for us encouraging, it's not like the normal consultants, they give you um, a script and then you need to do, they work with the people now in the execution mode. And that is for us very encouraging because they're busy transferring the skills.
0: Dr. Marie, this is all very encouraging. But would you still concede, though, that the situation does remain fragile?
1: It does because I think we work with old equipment and the old equipment, as you know, that requires then constant maintenance and we can see now in Durban that is now a pressure on how can we replace the equipment and how can we accelerate the repair of the existing equipment and how can we upgrade our workshops. Well, in Cape Town is a bit different, but Durban is very much on the equipment and how we can make sure that we can bring back a sustainability in the equipment.
0: And all of this takes money, doesn't it?
1: It does. And I think also what we can see, Michelle Phillips was actually very encouraging to say that they want to work with private sector and they want to open the door where private sector can participate and help them.
0: So you're starting to see some sustainability as far as this recovery is concerned. But having said that, though, um, we still need to look at root causes and who bears the most responsibility for these difficulties.
1: Yeah, but as I said, we can't uh, paint the ports across, um, let's say, our country in the same way. Because in Cape Town, it's a bit different. In Cape Town, they work with a skill set that's not um, currently conducive to work in the um, high winds. So we need to bring in some skills from our sea to retrain the people. And maybe there we need to work a little bit on the planning and also have a model where we can recover quickly after the wind. So there is a bit of a, a different approach than in Durban. In Durban, it's purely, I would think, the equipment. And in Cape Town, it's the planning, the wind, and things like that. But... I'm very encouraging because we can see the new management is taking ownership and they really work with private sector. They want to involve them and they understand the shared infrastructure and shared responsibility. So that's quite encouraging.
0: Having said that, though, Dr. Marie, you'll also acknowledge that uh, many companies desperate uh, to import and export product have simply moved to other options. One of those, for instance, the port of Maputo.
1: But the port of Maputo is very much an export corridor. So we don't have the import flow. So that makes that corridor very costly. So, yes, you can export from that, but it's a very costly option. So we need to fix our own infrastructure. Mm. And I think that's what we're busy doing.
0: In terms of knock-on effect and impact to your members, what have they been telling you?
1: I mean, we mustn't uh, be ignorant about it. Since November, when there was 25 vessels uh, out of Anchorage, And additional 15 days in extended supply chain, you would think to yourself, it puts a burden on the cash flow. And also they have to make alternatives. And some, yeah, there will be casualties, but I think we don't want to dwell too much on it. We just need to say that we have a turning point now and we need to pressure to make sure that we come out of it and probably redefine what is excellence in the supply chain.
0: So what would redefine excellence in your opinion?
1: I think it would definitely be a hybrid model between private sector and state-owned companies and then make sure that the modalities uh, like the ocean and the road and the rail works in a multimodal structure, we have different freight villages, we move containers away and we have different collection points and then we bring in uh, telematic data with technology and uh, we redefine how we work in this because we can't take the old methods, we're now in a different era and we need to apply new technology.
0: Are you not putting too much faith in public-private sector partnerships, given that there still is a a reticence, there's a nervousness about getting involved in a situation which uh, you described earlier as a perfect storm?
1: Yeah, uh, I can be practical because that's what I'm doing. I work in a practical environment. Uh, Let's say we can look at the marine side. In the marine side, you do have helicopters and you have helicopter pilots. Now, that not necessarily needs to sit in state-owned enterprises. It can be an outsourced company that provides the helicopters and the pilots, and uh, they probably will have a better economy of scale if they dedicate it on helicopters and the pilots. So that's a typical one that we can say we can do an outsourced environment there. The same when we look at the booking system now. We know there's a lot of outcry in happening with the water site and the land site, and the land site is very much the evacuation from the road. But there again, we're analyzing now over the last two, three days, a vessel that was coming in, and we're seeing now the behaving patterns of the private sector, what's happening each day while that vessel is coming in. So that gives us now an indication of what's happening in the supply chain. I think once we share the insights, we all can see what is the role that we need to play and how we can better our own environment.
0: Thank you very much for the frank assessment, Dr. Juanita Maria. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. I want to reflect again on the ICJ genocide ruling and Oscar van Heerden is a senior research fellow for African diplomacy and leadership at the University of Johannesburg and says with the Israelis, Europeans and the United States thoroughly embarrassed by South Africa's application, what significant repercussions can we expect in coming months? Oscar van Heerden joins me now on the program. Oscar, this morning, uh, Naledi Pandor, the uh, international relations minister, saying it's now up to the international community to take action on the order against Israel. The South African government says uh, the country is currently ignoring the order to prevent genocide in Gaza. What then is the next move, do you think?
2: Well, I think what, what the South African government will do is, short of public pronouncements, which is what the minister has done, is actually to implore um the ambassador to South African ambassador to the united nations to actually ask the secretary general of the united nations to begin to put this matter squarely on the agenda of the union security council um and to basically force the permanent five members we know um where uh, the United States of America and the United Kingdom stands, France has been a little bit ambivalent and haven't come out very clear as to its stance. Um, but I think there's going to be enormous pressure, for example, on China and Russia to say, if we know where the US and UK is going to vote, what is it, what say you? as permanent members of the Security Council, will you be able to stick your neck out and say that we will actually uh, try and force Israel to conform? What type of weight would that call by South Africa have, do you think? Well, as you know, Jeremy, South Africa is in an alliance in the BRICS uh, grouping with Russia and China, um, and it should count for something, I would imagine, uh, from the South Africans' perspective. I think they're going to be on the telephone line with Xi Jinping, with Putin, and say that, uh, you know, in terms of being on the right side of history, and in keeping with the world court's ruling, uh, can we rely on your partnership to try and force uh, enforcement of the ruling uh, as it pertains to Israel.
0: Do you think we're heading towards a radical realignment of global politics and a, and a repositioning as a result of this particular incident?
2: Well, this incident certainly contributed to that kind of move, but I do think, Jeremy, it's important for the listeners to know that already the, the balance of forces internationally, geopolitically, were shifting Um, We saw, not only with the formation of the BRICS uh, formation, and now it has expanded to enlarge its membership, but also uh, Africa as a continent beginning to also take ownership of their own destiny. We've seen, for example, in Francophone countries, Burkina Faso and others, uh, expelling the former colonial power of France out of their borders. We see a realignment uh, taking place in other parts of the world. Um, China becoming much more vocal in terms of wanting. Taiwan to be incorporated back into mainland China, um, and so on and so forth. So, slowly but surely, we see these tectonic shifts that have been happening. The ruling from the ICJ was just one more nail in that direction to say the world is shifting away from the collective West being the dominant uh, power, uh, and the UN, United States of America being the only single pa- superpower. Um, there's a clear shift towards multilateralism within the international system.
0: And what further recourse, if any, if the United Nations chooses to uh, ignore calls to act more firmly? What is the trajectory then?
2: Well, unfortunately, then what we can surmise, since the International Court of Justice already agreed with South Africa, saying that there is plausibility in Israel committing genocidal acts, I think it, it's a foregone conclusion then that if Israel, whether they adhere to the ruling or not, continues unabated on the current path of militarization, of bombing and killing indiscriminately, uh, then they are only but strengthening the, the, the broader case of genocide. Uh, when it actually finally uh, gets underway at the World Court, um, not, and obviously the other big consequence, Jeremy, I should also mention, is that if indeed the United Nation, uh, the United States, sorry, uh, vetoes any action to be taken against Israel, I think that morally, ethically, it's going to redefine the the so-called international uh, order, um, because I think. P- countries of the global south and many developing countries are going to come to the inescapable conclusion that we cannot even rely on the institutions that were set up globally to try and enforce law and order
0: there's absolutely no doubt that we are at a nexus point dr oscar thank you very much indeed money web at midday for all your up-to-date stories The very latest 2023 Global Entrepreneurship Monitor South Africa report, it's been released today, says the country's early stage entrepreneurial activity has declined to below pre-pandemic levels. And regarding entrepreneurial intention, fewer people than ever before are considering starting a new business. This sounds serious. More now from Professor Natanya Mayer, who is co-author of the Stellenbosch Business School's Monitor Report. And first of all, Professor And can you then elaborate for me on the key factors contributing to this decline?
3: Yes. So just to give a little bit of background, we're currently standing at about 8.5 percent. And during 2021, it was it peaked at 17.5 percent. Now, this is definitely strange if you think it was COVID times, but the rationale behind this is that many people during COVID Um, lost their jobs. They were restricted from movement because of lockdown, etc. And obviously, a lot of things went online. This also forced a lot of businesses to go online and to make sure that their product is also available in more technological advanced ways than it was before. It also made access to the market or ease of entry a little bit easier because of this online Approach and not having, you know, to have a traditional brick and mortar. So a lot of people started businesses during that time.
4: Mm.
3: Unfortunately, some of these businesses were also started out of necessity and not possibly out of potential or, you know, seeing opportunity, which is a bad thing. Because that means or meant that a lot of them also didn't succeed or last very long. So in a nutshell, that is what we sort of analysed or, or took from this spike in the early stage entrepreneurial activity during that time.
0: So fewer people, if I understand you correctly, are considering starting new businesses. What are they afraid of?
3: Yes. So if you look at when we measure the entrepreneurial intention or, or as you mentioned, starting new businesses, there are certain things that actually um, affects this choice or this thought or action to behave in a certain manner to actually start something and this is obviously things like good career choice. So fortunately, we do see that people still think that being a business owner or entrepreneur is a good career choice. It's still seen by the public as a high status, you know, if you're your own boss or Mm -hmm. entrepreneur, you are sort of seen as a status symbol. We know that the media is putting a lot of attention on this to be the so-called cure for all our economic problems, which unfortunately at this stage, it's not doing the way it should. But the thing that you mentioned now and what is really hindering people to actually take that first step and start is fear of failure. And this is one of the variables that we measure that we saw has actually increased. And, I mean, just look around you if you have a look at our ecosystem, everything that's happening in the country, all the crime, um, problems with access to electricity. There's so many other things. And this is actually giving people a fear or having them think twice before actually starting a business. And and this is what we anticipate are some of the reasons. The environment or the enabling environment for businesses to thrive or survive in is deteriorating at the moment, and people are scared to take that chance.
0: And all of that, of course, is perfectly understandable because economic risk in South Africa is growing exponentially.
3: Yes, Definitely. And you must remember when a person takes a cognitive decision to start a business, some people just jump in it and they just start. And, you know, that's your kamikazes or your risk takers. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But most people are more realistic. And obviously, it takes a lot of planning, finances, getting your your um, product or service set up. And people are really scared to take that chance because there's a lot at stake if it doesn't succeed. But just on a positive. We also received the latest, latest data, which we're starting to write up now, and it has improved slightly. So maybe that initial fear after COVID and so many businesses failing, you know, people are starting to see that there is potential and there is hope. So that's at least a positive. I don't want to end this conversation just on all the negative notes.
0: (laughs) I will certainly take that on board and I'll come right back at you then and ask what then should the specific measures be that you recommend or suggest to foster a more robust entrepreneurial culture that can take advantage of this uh, increased positivity?
3: Okay, so we also measure what we call the entrepreneurial framework conditions. And these are 13 conditions that through a lot of research and over the years we've developed, we meaning the global team of behind the gem. And we look at certain things that needs to in pla- be in place for a business To actually firstly start or a person to have the intention to start a business, to set the business up and then obviously to survive, thrive and eventually grow because that's what we want. So I'm just going to run through a few of them because Mm. we could have a whole morning discussion on them. But obviously we need to have sufficient entrepreneurial finance. So businesses need finance to start. And again, this is a topic on its own. There should be access to finance specifically for entrepreneurs because you get different ones government support there's there's two aspects we look at firstly support and relevance and then taxes and bureaucracy and unfortunately we're not faring too well on those two indicators then the access or availability of government entrepreneurial programs we do see that there's a lot of them available but again the management and the implication and the success rate of these are you know sometimes not as we want them to see something very close to my heart is education we do see that especially in school education we do not see that this entrepreneurial culture among kids are being created post school it's a little bit better then obviously we need to look at research and development um, infrastructure market dynamics physical infrastructure and then the last one is having a culture so social and cultural norms and all of these indicators unfortunately in the last survey measured below five although again there was an increase from the year before but they're still all below average so these are the things in different orders if you want to put it that really needs to be worked on for businesses to have a better conducive environment to start survive and thrive in those are the three things we look at
0: professor natanya mayer thank you very much indeed you're listening to Moneyweb web at midday The Harvard Business Review writing that a failure to recognize, monitor and address the risk of work-related suicide poses a major and ongoing threat to the health and safety of employees, the quality delivered and employer reputation, not to mention the bottom line. More broadly, mental health at work needs to move beyond well-being washing, it's called, and to get serious about people risk. I want to give you a view on this broader topic now with Michelle DeLange from the healthcare consulting firm NMGB benefits Michelle a very warm welcome to you. What then are the potential impacts on business and their workforce if companies don't actively engage in addressing mental health problems?
4: Hi Jeremy, thanks so much for having me on your show. Um look, the impact is significant. It's been well documented that the impact more so than just on the individual employee's lives, but on the bottom line is significant. So um, it has a, an impact on the financial um, success of the business. And so it is critically important that employers address this. So you either need to spend money on a program, such as an employee wellness program, or if you're not spending, you still are, in fact, losing money by not addressing the issue. So it's, it's a critical component.
0: How do companies convert a nice-to-have to a must-have in terms of what you've just outlined? Because I would suggest to you, many simply pay lip service to the concept.
4: Yes, I think that is true. And I think a large portion of it has been because employers have questioned the return on investment with such programs. Typically, the utilisation is quite low. And so there is a a sort of a perception that maybe this is just a nice-to-have. Um, arguably, it... It, the utilization needs to be improved and so awareness both from i mean i suppose conversations such as this is important to to bring to create awareness around employee assistance programs and the value that they bring but internally i mean there was also studies that suggest that sixty four percent of employees are not aware of the fact that, um, that the employer has such programs and that they have access to it or how to access it so I think it's um it's it's really important that the awareness of the program how do they make sure that the the individual employees know how to access and what the benefits are that it's confidential and the the value that this can bring to them
0: Michelle this is just Michelle, this beyond is a, an HR issue it's it's a company issue what red flags do managers need to look out for
4: That's a great question I think the the reality is is that Are managers and HR well-equipped enough to be able to identify these sorts of things? I'm not sure that you are always. Um, And so these types of programs have coaching. They give leadership coaching. They give um, career coaching. They give um, managerial assistance in terms of how to identify. So to your point, um, I'm not sure that outside of the general scope, um, if you're not generally aware of this the particular signs and the symptoms that are are there then you you may miss it Um, the obvious ones would be absenteeism or sort of presenteeism but if you are not actively involved in the the team then I suppose you can miss it and that's why these types of Coaching that they've made available, webinars that's available through these types mm. of programs are very important. Yeah.
0: Do you think there are specific industries or sectors where employees are more vulnerable to mental health issues?
4: Yes, I would say so. I think t- typically the reality is that mental health is is sort of rife across other other elements sort of come into it. So financial pressure um, substance abuse, those types of things play an important, you know, they're all intercorrelated. And so the reality is I do think where you have perhaps your mining sectors and, you know, the sectors where generally sometimes you have blue-collar workers that don't know how to access, it's, there's also a stigmatism in terms of mental health and wellness and you don't speak about those types of things. So I do think in some areas it's, uh, it is working. But whether it is actually being addressed is the question. And so, um, but in one in six South African employees suffer suffer from some sort of mental illness. And so when you think of an employer group of, let's say, a few thousand, it's a large portion of your employer group that are, are struggling.
0: What then are the initial steps that companies should take to develop an effective support system?
4: Look, I think um, I think in collaboration with providers out there that have the expertise and that specialize in this would be your first step. So, there are um, employee assistance programs and products out there that have years of experience. That and then I would say that's the first step. So you should reach out to those particular providers, if the company has a healthcare broker, they can reach out to them and try and do a review to see what would be most suitable for their particular workforce. And I think making sure that whoever you partner with understands your business, understands issues such as access, understands that, you know, is there Wi-Fi access? Do they have access to data? So there are certain elements of the program that may not be available to the staff on the you know, the production line or whatever the case is. And so I think it's important that you partner with the Employee Assistance Programme provider to make sure that there's an element of customization.
0: Michelle DeLange, thank you very much indeed.
2: I'm Simon Brown, host of MoneyWeb Now. Join me every weekday morning at 6.30 on the MoneyWeb website or the app to kickstart your morning with the most up-to-date business, economic and investing news. I ask CEOs about results, speak to analysts on their favorite stocks and get to understand the inner workings of the economy. Podcast published just after 7. MoneyWeb now with me, Simon Brown, to start your day informed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday
0: amazon's launch into the south african market could have a seismic effect i'm told on the digital advertising landscape so marketers need to be paying as much attention as possible Uh, that assessment from grant lapping digital executive at plus 1x the company describes itself as a new age solutions and systems integrator grant what shifts then do you expect in this digital advertising space
5: hi jeremy thanks for having me on the show um yeah i think I think a lot of the focus of Amazon coming into South Africa. everyone's worried about the impact it's going to have on companies like take Lot and retailers. But what people aren't also looking at is the impact it's going to have on the big ad platforms such as such as Google for one because it's not just about a marketplace where they sell products they actually also run ads and and if you look at it on a global level, especially in the US, 50% of product searches actually happen on Amazon versus 31% on Google. So that is actually a big shift you know, in terms of where ad revenue is going to go and ad spend is going to go. And the way a TikTok is a thorn on the side of uh, Facebook at the moment, I think Amazon's definitely growing into a real competitor to Google, especially for product, product-related searches.
0: So how then do marketers, do companies need to start preparing for the change that, that you're outlining to me?
5: Well, I think, I think being in an agency environment, um, it's actually a great thing for us because it gives us a new platform and it's not, it's not going to definitely not going to hurt. It's going to help marketers because they've got more channels to use right now. A large portion of ad spend in the digital mix is going to, to Google <clears throat> just because they are so dominant. And now we have an alternative. We actually have another way to, to reach our audiences. And that kind of competition, I think, is only going to make it easier to get, you know, cost-effective ads in front of your consumers. And the targeting and the data available on Amazon is amazing. Imagine you can actually target ads to people that are searching for your competitors' products. Uh, that's now available. And, you know, there's huge opportunities
0: Grant, you point out that Amazon has an ability to operate at a loss while building traffic. Um, so, are we going to see an inevitable price war when it comes to marketing communication?
5: Yeah, I think uh, Jeff Bezos said, "Your your margin is is my advantage," or something <laughs> along those lines. And 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 they do. They have so much cash available, they can afford to to go underwater and stay there for a lot longer than most competitors can. So. That is how they've operated in other markets, from what I understand, and um, I think it, I think that is something that other uh, e-commerce platforms, such as the Lots or Bash or, or those types of platforms, are going to have to be very aware of. Um, I, it will take them time to build out the distribution network, the infrastructure, the staff, everything on the ground in South Africa, it's not going to happen quickly, but um, they don't it's definitely a monopoly type space. They'll sell everything and they'll have the inventory for everything. And I don't know if there's going to be much room for a lot of players, but I think we'll see with time going to be an interesting space
0: to watch. It certainly will be. Grant Lapping, thank you very much indeed. Before we go, we asked on our daily poll yesterday what new actions South Africa should take to address corruption. Uh, The options: strengthen judicial law enforcement systems, implement stricter enforcement of anti-corruption laws or increase resources of the judicial system. And the answer by a long way, and this is the call from the MoneyWeb community, to strengthen law enforcement. Today, it relates to an interview we did earlier on the program, the number one priority in resolving South Africa's ongoing logistics crisis, target the root causes, refine and enforce policies, or immediate operational improvement. Go to MoneyWeb on Twitter X, also on our LinkedIn page, and we'll have the results on the show Friday. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we're up as a podcast. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.